thank you for this privilege. If you have your Bibles with you, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I believe it's page 311 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> the scripture morning, scripture lesson this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. People of God, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman went away. Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand. And call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, is the great word the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down. And dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth... And the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as you now speak to us in your living words. Spirit, come and teach us what we need to hear. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, that it really is a small world. I don't think it's a coincidence that I, as a Korean American, is preaching at a missions conference at a Presbyterian church in the South. Not only because I believe that God is sovereign and providential in all that he does, and not only because I'm a Presbyterian minister, 
but I'm here today as a Presbyterian minister gripped by the gospel of amazing grace, the amazing grace of Jesus. Because people like Maddie Ingold from Hickory, North Carolina, pointed Koreans to Jesus in the early 1900s. You see, Maddie Ingold was someone whose heart was gripped by gospel hope. So much so that when she graduated first in her class at Baltimore Women's Medical College, she prepared herself for a missionary career and at the age of 30, left for Korea on July 18, 1897. Sent by her church and denomination, much like this church here, sending these missionaries. The Presbyterian Church U.S., also known as the Southern Presbyterian Church. She focused her initial medical work on women and children through small clinics and dispensaries. Her work, however, wasn't just in healing bodies, but also healing souls. She pointed Koreans to Jesus. Captivated by the grace of God in her life, she simply pointed others to Jesus. So in addition to her medical work, she taught Sunday school, a women's weekday Bible class, and when given the opportunity, she and her assistants offered Christian education classes to patients at local clinics and at home visits in the countryside. She did this for 31 years. In fact, the seemingly small and insignificant medical clinic that she helped establish in my home country, Korea, has been providing medical care and proclaiming the gospel continuously for the last 124 years. At her farewell service at the First Presbyterian Church of Rock Hill, South Carolina, she said, quote, I do not fear what may befall me. I am in God's keeping and nothing can come to me without his permission and whatever he sends is right and good. Because of God's grace, She was a hope-filled pointer. Now, not all of us will be called by God to go to difficult foreign fields to do missions like Maggie Ingold and Allison and others, and that's okay. Only some of us will be called by God to do this kind of ministry. But I believe that all of us sitting in this room today are called in one way, shape, or form because of the grace that we've received in Christ to be hope-filled pointers. And I want to discover from this text this morning, from this seemingly distant, faraway land called Syria and Israel, I think it has some profound things to teach us about God, his sovereign purposes about Christ, and yes, even us, we ordinary people, how we can demonstrate extraordinary faith striving to be hope-filled pointers wherever God may place us. In Memphis or Mumbai, Carolina or Korea. Now, how does this text teach us that? Simply this. Since the gospel has washed us and made us new, giving us hope, our call is to humbly point others to the same Christ in our words and in our deeds. And so while there are many truths and insights we can learn from this wonderful Bible passage, I want to take a look at three main characters in this narrative and draw up some points that will hopefully encourage and inspire you to be hope-filled pointers 
to grace. So three characters will be our outline this morning. So first, let's take a look at this first character named Naaman. What can we learn about ourselves through him? Well, I think there are at least two things we can learn about ourselves through the story of Naaman. But first, a little bit of background. Israel and Syria had a long history of fighting over trade, land, and water. Now, thankfully, King Ahab of Israel was able to work out a tentative truce with the king of Syria. But while there was no technical war in the land, there was still what we call these like little border skirmishes, right, with the soldiers. Now, during one of these little skirmishes, a young girl from Israel was taken captive, becoming a servant girl in, for, in the service of General Naaman's wife. So that's where we pick up our story here in Naaman's household. So who is Naaman? Verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that he's a commander of the army of Syria. In fact, he's a great man. He's a man of power, a valiant soldier, one of the most powerful soldiers in the army. He was highly regarded for military victory, maybe even against that great land called Assyria. He, had a, he held a place of high esteem and honor in his society. Notice he can even go to the king personally to make requests. Not anybody can do that. That's how powerful and respected he was. But he had a problem. Remember? Conjunction, junction. What's your function, right? <laughs> he had a problem. What was his problem? The story takes a strange turn at the very end of verse 1. In fact, we read this phrase, but he had leprosy. That's four words, right? In the Hebrew, it's actually just one. And I think the narrator does that on purpose to force you as a reader the original readers being the Jews. You read all this flowing prose. He was wonderful, great, powerful. The resume was like this. He can go to the king. Everybody respected him. And then the narrative just comes to a full stop and says, leper. The narrator does this on purpose, I think. No matter how impressive of a man he was due to his military and political power, essentially, one can view him as simply an outcast. And a pariah because of a skin condition. So the first obvious problem we read about here is this external problem, this physical disease of leprosy that must have caused him much discomfort and pain. And for those of us not as familiar with this skin disease called leprosy, listen to this description from a medical doctor. Leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness, numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begin to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings. Fingers start to drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently attacks the, attacks the larynx, the voice acquires a kind of grating quality. And, the doctor continues, if you stay with one for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. 
All the senses of the well person are engaged in the detection of a leper. And though today we have medicine to cure this disease, during biblical times, it was a horrific disease that literally wasted away the body. It was a dreadful and disgusting disease. But there's a less obvious problem that the story intends intends for us all to see, and it's actually not the external problem, but the internal problem. You see, his problem was more than skin deep. As a leper, General Naaman experienced to some level a social exclusion that would have caused much internal shame and depression. Even though he had a great resume and a great reputation, when people looked at him, all they saw was the leprosy. It didn't matter who he was. In their eyes, he was simply an outcast, marginalized, not only because of his skin disease, but actually what it represented spiritually. You see, Naaman was actually cursed inside and out. To the Israelites, to the Jews, first reading and hearing this story, he wasn't just somebody to be pitied for a skin disease. Surely he was that. But it was actually more serious. He was actually considered by the Bible unclean. The Bible tells us from passages like Leviticus 13 that lepers in Israel had to be isolated not only because of their physical contagion, that makes sense, but also because more importantly in their mind, their spiritual status. And so for Jews reading this story for the first time, they're reading this, understanding this, they understand and can imagine the humiliation and isolation that accompanies the leper's life. And for someone like Naaman, If he was in Israel, he would be ostracized from society, had to assume a disheveled appearance. He had to always wear black. And then there was the ultimate degradation for the leper in Israel. When anybody came nearby, he had to yell out to them, unclean, unclean, get away from me, for I am unclean. He's not just talking about his external disease. The leper was crying out, about his internal disease. He had to wear black with the hood covering his face and live outside the city walls. Josephus, the famous first century Jewish historian, summed it up by simply saying that lepers were treated, quote, as if they were, in effect, dead men. Even the king of Israel understood this, right? What does he say in verse 7? Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Naaman is essentially a dead person, walking. Dead man walking. So for Jews reading and hearing this story, this is a severe and serious problem. Naaman was not only an outsider, but he was spiritually unclean, cursed under God's judgment. And friends, this is the first thing we need to learn from this story. Whether we want to admit it or not, outside of Christ, Naaman's problem is our problem. Outside of those who find mercy in Jesus Christ, salvation and healing and rescue, his leprosy is a physical illustration of all of our hearts that have not been cleansed by Jesus, including your next-door neighbor, whether they're here in Memphis or in Mumbai, Carolina or Korea. And if for a moment we can see a visible representation or a visible incarnation of ourselves apart from the cleansing work of Christ we would see ourselves as the walking dead 
forms dead in our trespasses and sins, forms trying to cover ourselves with filthy rags. We try to cover it up with our status, our success, our reputation, our resume. But in the end, outside of Christ, we are all spiritual lepers, wasting away from the inside out. And so this is the problem of all those who don't know Jesus. But there's another truth we can learn about Naaman. In light of Naaman's problems, both inside and out, what does he actually do about it? You see that he gets permission from his king in verses 5 and 6, and he goes to the prophet. But notice what Naaman does to try to get rid of the disease as well as his depression. We see in our text, specifically in verses 5 through 13, at least five things that he does. Did you notice them? Let's count them. First, did you notice he brings his resources? He brings an enormous amount of money, 700 pounds of silver, 120 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. Why? Why does he bring all these resources with him? Simply because he's hoping to buy a cure. But notice, secondly, he brings his relationships, doesn't he? He expects the kings of Israel and Syria to open doors for him, verses 6 and 7. He relies upon relationships, secondly, to receive some sort of favor from Elisha. But wait, there's more. Third, he brings his reputation, doesn't he? He brings his own reputation. When he finally arrives at Elisha's house in verse 9, he expects Elisha to be impressed by his status with all of his entourage with him. So he waits for Elisha to come greet him personally. Did you notice that detail? Showing the honor his reputation deserves. So he brings his resources, his relationships, his reputation. But notice, did you also notice he also brings his own race into the equation? Number four. When he's told by Elisha to bathe in the Jordan River, verse 10, he's actually upset. But surely the rivers in his home country are much better than this insignificant, inferior, muddy Jordan. His race is much better. And lastly, the fifth thing that he brings. Do you notice, fifthly, he brings his sense of rewards. At the end of the day, he expected that he could do something great, a great thing. As his servants testify in verse 13, to earn or to merit his healing and restore his honor. Do something great, merit a reward. That's the equation. So ultimately, as we look at these five things that he brings, his relationships and his resources and relationships, his reputation, race, and rewards, what can we learn? At the end of the day, Naaman's hope is in Naaman. Naaman's salvation is found in Naaman. His solution to his problem of disease and depression is ultimately himself. At the end of the day, Naaman's ultimate trust and hope, security and salvation is himself. And friends, the point of the story here is that outside of Christ's grace and cleansing, we are all the same. Now we may call it different things, But how often in the midst of the challenges and difficulties of life, how often do we look to ourselves for security and control, for salvation and hope? And friends, looking to ourselves, whether in self-pity or in self-pride, is nothing but a symptom of something deeper called unbelief. A lack of faith and trust in God, no matter what the circumstances may be. And friends, this is the solution that those without Jesus 
turn to. And our hearts must break for them. They need the light and the life of Jesus to provide ultimate healing and hope. And that's why we go. That's why we trust and obey our Savior when he says, go and tell the nations. Because they need this healing. They need this hope. So we've learned that in the midst of sin and severe trials of life, how often we turn to everything but God for our security and hope. Friends, Naaman's problem and solution, unfortunately, is our problem and solution. This is what we learn from our first character in this story. Which brings us to our second character, Elisha. What can we learn about God through the character of Elisha? We've learned about ourselves through the character of Naaman. What can we learn about God through the character of Elisha? Did you notice what Elisha does when Naaman brings all these things to the table? Naaman brings his resources. Elisha accepts nothing, refuses it. Naaman uses his relationships The king's references don't mean a thing to Elisha. Naaman brings his reputation. Did you notice Elisha doesn't go out to greet Naaman but sends his servant? Naaman brings his race. Elisha tells him, go be washed, yes, in that muddy, insignificant river. Naaman brings his sense of rewards. Elisha tells him simply to get washed, to be a passive recipient, nothing more. So first, notice, Elisha rejects everything. Clearly, this is not what God requires. So Naaman goes away angry, doesn't he? And friends, this is the first thing we learn about our God through this story. God ultimately rejects all of our man-made, self-centered solutions for salvation. Just like Elisha rejects all that Naaman tries to bring and to buy, God rejects all of our efforts and our assets. So all of Naaman's resources and righteousness are rejected. But what else do we learn? Not only does Elisha reject, but Elisha reveals, doesn't he? Elisha reveals that true healing and true salvation is not something you earn. It is actually something, this is crazy, that you just receive. It is received by God's grace alone through something as simple yet crazy as faith alone. What does Elisha tell Naaman to do? He is told to go dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. I don't know why it's seven. One of these days when I go to heaven, I want to ask. It is the number of perfection. Maybe that's one reason. Maybe after five times, you still don't believe. So it's always testing your faith. Go six times, seven times. Okay, I truly believe. And though at first, Naaman was not convinced by the seemingly insignificant act of faith, He finally goes to the river, by faith gets washed, and lo and behold, after the seventh time, his flesh was restored, and he became clean and pure. Friends, Naaman finally realized that God's ways are different from his ways. He realized that things like his resources and reputation could never, ever be enough for God. And this is the second thing we learn about our God through the character of Elisha, right? The only way to receive true cleansing and healing is by grace through faith. It's that simple yet that profound. We learn that true cleansing and healing 
from being unclean, under judgment, outside of God's blessing, comes by receiving God's grace alone through faith alone. You see, Naaman's leprosy is a picture of the sin that isolates all of us from God. Before coming to faith in Christ, we are all unclean, all under judgment, all outside of God's blessing. We cannot cleanse ourselves of the sin that has overtaken our hearts. God must do it. And friends, this is the beginning of true cleansing, recognizing that by ourselves, we cannot get rid of the disease, the ultimate disease of sin and shame. And friends, what's amazing about this same God who taught this lesson to Naaman wants to teach you something today. Because many centuries after Naaman, God will intervene yet again in the life of a leper. Do you remember what happened in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45? A man with leprosy comes to Jesus asking for healing, and what does Jesus do? Listen carefully to this from Mark 1, 41. Filled with compassion... Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And friends, with that simple touch, Jesus healed him, forever changing his life. Perhaps it had been months, even years, since the leper had been touched by another. Perhaps he was a father and had once known the embrace of his wife and children, but that was so many years ago. But now, Jesus touched him. The language here is more than just superficial contact. The Greek word that's used here is actually he grabbed a hold of him. Jesus grasped him. He held him. Jesus placed his hands firmly on the leper. Jesus didn't need to do that. He could have easily just spoken the word to heal him. So imagine the scene. The disciples must have been shocked. Jesus, what are you doing You are now ceremonially unclean and might even catch the disease. Jesus, what are you thinking? Beloved, this wasn't just loving compassion. It was substitutionary identification. The clean touch of Jesus' pure hand on the unclean leper was a sign of what was to come. You see, beloved, Jesus became a leper for us. You see how scandalous and yet amazing this is? With that grasp, the unclean became clean and the clean became unclean. Here in 2 Kings 5, in Mark chapter 1, we have a picture of what Jesus will do to ultimately make us all clean. God took the sin and shame that leprosy represents and placed it on his own son at Golgotha. He cast him outside the city walls to a hill called Calvary. And there on Calvary, Jesus endured all the scorn and shame of not only Naaman's leprosy, but the disease of all of our sin. There on Calvary, he was excluded so we can be brought in. There on Calvary, he was cast outside of God's favor so we can receive eternal blessing. There on Calvary, he was placed under judgment so we can be declared righteous. There on Calvary, he became unclean so we can be clean. Friends, this is our God. He has done it all. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be called, hallelujah, the righteousness of God. So friends, our security and our hope, indeed the security and hope of the whole, the whole world needs is not in ourselves, but in God alone because of grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, received by faith alone. And this is why 
we can trust in him and have hope in him. Even when we are facing the most severe trials and tribulations of life that seem often so insurmountable. God has claimed victory over the most difficult trial of life itself, death. Since God has taken care of death for us, will he not take care of the rest? This is what Elisha teaches us about the amazing grace of God. So we looked at two major characters, Naaman and Elisha. Who's the third? There's one final character I'd like for us to learn from. Well, she doesn't have the prestige of Naaman nor the significance of Elisha. So I want you to read again or hear again and take a look at this seemingly insignificant person described for us in verses 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Hmm. Probably no more than 11 or 12 years old. We are introduced to an unnamed, kidnapped, trafficked servant girl. Far from her family, far from her home, she has become a slave and a servant in a foreign land. And unfortunately, sometimes we too quickly gloss over people like her as we read the Bible. But there's so much we can learn from her. Think about it in contrast to Naaman. She's about as low as you can get. On the social ladder, she had no rights. She's a foreign captive in another country. She had no reputation as a female in the Middle East. She was uneducated and disregarded. And perhaps most telling of all, she has no name. We are not told her name. But that's because it wasn't and isn't important. We don't know the name of the servant girl imprisoned in a foreign land, surrounded by difficult and dark circumstances, but what we do know is this. In a remarkable testimony of faithful and humble missionary servant service, she pointed to the only one that could provide healing and hope. She was simply a pointer, a hope-filled pointer to the God of grace. She simply told him where he could get help. She was simply a servant pointing to God, even the most difficult of circumstances. Having been trafficked and made a slave of this family, she looks beyond herself, sees herself as a pilgrim, yes, on a very, very difficult journey. Knowing in faith, with hope that God is still her God and that God has the power and compassion to even bless this man responsible for taking her away from her home. Notice how she views Naaman. Verse 3, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Friends, what extraordinary faith. She is able to see beyond the natural instinct, right? The natural instinct of fear, bitterness, revenge. Wow. Astoundingly, she like Maddie Ingold of Hickory, North Carolina, sees above all a person in need, both physically and spiritually, and simply points that person in faith, in hope-filled faith, to her God. Friends, there's so much I can inspire you with at this conclusion of the missions conference, at least for me, 
Put God first, love your family, pray without ceasing, share the gospel. These are all great exhortations, of course. But what I want to leave you is with this. Since Jesus has washed you and made you new by his amazing grace, humbly point others to Jesus in your words and in your deeds, no matter how difficult your circumstances. Friends, we are but ordinary people who can demonstrate extraordinary faith and hope ultimately because of the love and grace of God found in Jesus. And because of Jesus' grace in our lives, let's become hope-filled pointers. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the amazing ways you have rescued us and now you call us to be hope-filled pointers. And so, Lord, as we ponder anew what you have done for us and the amazing grace of Jesus who became a leper for us. We pray that we would ponder in our own minds and hearts how we can partner with what you are doing in missions throughout the city and throughout the world as we pray for mission, as we partner with mission, as we participate in mission. But Lord, we pray that we would begin by being a pointer, a hopeful pointer to Jesus It is our desire to be a light for the nations as we become hope-filled pointers. May it be so, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.